welcome everybody uh, this afternoon. Um, we have here with us uh, Jeremy Dietmar, Dr. Jeremy Dietmar, who is uh, from the Department of Economics at the London School of Economics. Um, I will only mention one thing, that uh, in 2014, he was awarded an ERC grant to work on uh, information technology in history. And uh, the work that he is that he will be discussing with us today is part of his ongoing research on um, books and society. We'll go straight into it because um, Jeremiah will then take questions and discussions afterwards, but has to catch a train uh, by hopefully four o'clock. So um, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, when you have to go, you will we'll hear it. Thank you, Jeremiah. Thank you so much uh, for having me. So. Um, uh, in my discipline, actually, questions are often offered or uh, demanded answered during the talk. So, if you wish, uh, by all means, as you go. Um, so, uh, so I don't know if this is a little bit uh, here. That's fine. If you have a question after this. Um, so, this is research, a part of a larger project on uh, printing and print media in early modern Europe, and by training and uh, by I'm an economist. So I'm going to uh, open a few questions that potentially anyways are, are interesting for people who are social historians, cultural historians, uh, historians of the book, uh, of the book trades, and think about uh, how, how do economic historians and economists uh, think about questions to do with markets, labor processes, technologies, which potentially anyways are salient for uh, printing in early modern Europe. Um, so uh, we see contemporaries uh, suggesting that printing radically transformed uh, the diffusion of knowledge and sort of uh, perhaps with somewhat uh, purple prose, you know, suggesting suddenly people were able to access ideas that were prior, previously ex extremely hard uh, to consult. Um, and on the other hand, we see people who are actually involved in the buying and selling of books or the acquiring of them, uh, recording quite detailed and interesting evidence suggesting, you know, while maybe books were scattered abroad amongst all the nations of the world, that the, the actual ways in which one came to possess or consult these books were, were on some fundamental level embedded in uh, recognizable economic processes. So, so this is a quote uh, from Christopher Columbus's son, who, I mean, I think people in this room know, uh, embarked on collecting a quite remarkable collection of books you know, with a grand hope to establish a universal library that would have you know, all the books of Christendom and beyond within it. Um, and so I, I spent a summer in Sevilla, and this came to my attention while, while looking at archives in Sevilla. And much of this talk will focus on the sorts of evidence we can draw from this collection. You know, fundamentally, we have evidence here on the prices of books, where they were purchased, when they were purchased, and what prevailing exchange rates were. So the starting point for me, anyways, are that potentially there's you know, uh, some area for us to make progress thinking about the cost of books as a really interesting summary statistic on the availability of ideas. So I hadn't thought about this until just the trip over, but Carlo Cipolla, the, the Italian economic historian, sort of thinks about early modern Europe in one of his monographs from the 50s 
as being like fundamentally characterized by three prices. You know, the price of transport, the price of borrowing interest rates, and the price of accessing stored or transmitted idea in text. And what was it like when you were a university student in Bologna before the printing press and you were hoping to equip yourself for a career in the law? So one idea of this project is to, to, to echo some of these uh, observations in the social history of printing and make some uh, progress on it. And the other is that, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, you will correct me, but it seems like there's limited conversation between economists, people trained in quantitative methods, and people in uh, the, the book studies literature. And uh, I'm going to suggest to you we can think about prices as a very interesting window onto society. So by no means are prices the only way you would think about uh, uh, understanding social relations. Like, uh, economists, if anything, sometimes we fetishize prices in markets. There's lots of activity. Books tr are transmitted in many ways that are not priced. There's all sorts of borrowing, lending, exchange that's not going to show up in market uh, transactions. But price history does provide us some very interesting ground to think about you know, broadly the conditions of demand. So an economist thinking about demand is talking about desire, right? some landscape of desire coupled with the willingness to pay. So in our, in our notion of demand, absent the willingness to pay, your desire doesn't register, right? So implicitly, we're already thinking about who has endowments, wealth, income, that al allows them to participate in these markets. Prices also tell us simultaneously something about the conditions of supply. So whether that's technology, uh, whether that's transport, uh, whether that's indeed competition among producers, booksellers, and others in the book trades, who together are organizing the provision of these commodities to European reading publics. Okay. So some questions for today. These are sort of rudimentary questions, but I think are still fruitful. So the first is, you know, how much was that? Uh, how do book prices compare to other prices and incomes in this society? How accessible uh, were these as commodities? Uh, the second question is, how did prices evolve? Can you, I don't know if you can read this. Okay, is this hopefully legible? Um, so I'm interested in thinking about how did prices uh, 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 shift over time? What is the time path of prices? And a very interesting fact is that over the 1500s, we see very large declines in book prices at the sorts of rates economists are used to seeing in uh, sectors in, uh, of the economy that we describe as modern. So we, we, unlike sociologists, do not have all sorts of uh, acquired concerns about the word modern. This is this my colleagues sort of often uncritically use as a descriptor for the world of like high growth capitalism. So industrial revolution and after among conventional economists is described as modern. Uh, we often think about the world as evolving slowly prior. And I'm going to suggest to you, at least in the book trade, we see the world evolving quickly prior. Um, and of course, uh, when you see transactions in markets, the people and indeed the products in these uh, European book markets are incredibly heterogeneous. So there's going to be a lot of difference in price that could be based on the differences in the books, the rise of popular print, and so on, changes in formats over time, changes in decorations and illuminations, but also just the heterogeneity of booksellers and purchasers. So the, I mean, maybe it goes without saying, but these are not um, markets typically where there's a price tag. 
uh, and you, you sort of a take it or leave it offer. Uh, and as a result, we're going to see lots of variation uh, explained or, or hard to explain by things other than the idiosyncrasies of buyers and sellers. Um, and then if we were to take this seriously as an economic sector, we might reasonably inquire into the role that competition and industrial organization and labor processes uh, uh, played in the shaping of access, in the ways in which books were transmitted and priced. Um, so, th so this is sort of, to my colleagues, the sort of immediate place you might want to go. Uh, these aren't just sort of, technology does not just operate in a vacuum. Uh, it, it operates in an institutional, but also fundamentally like an economic industrial organization setting. Uh, so as, as in, like, why should we just think of printing? It's printing in like local oligopolies uh, with firms sometimes competing across space in particular market segments. Okay, so my talk is uh, sort of an economics uh, cut uh, at some of these issues and uh, prices, but and there's certainly no claim that economics is the privileged way to think about these. If anything, like my hope is to come here and make some connections that are a little interdisciplinary. So I'll talk about a few sources uh, um, today. The, the books that uh, Cologne purchased across a number of European cities, um, essentially these need to be transcribed. The existing catalogs contain a reasonable number of sort of mistranscriptions and errors. So. Um, like those have been, I'm just going to be a little breezy. You can stop me if you'd like, but I'm going to uh, work with a sort of clean subset of the Cologne data. Um, there's a number of other sources in the literature that I'm just going to flag uh, and show you some pictures of to get at least at a very high level uh, uh, a sense of an overview of prices over a large period of time. So uh, this is obviously Christina's work. This is the work of Daniel Denessi, if I'm pronouncing it right. These are heterogeneous sources. Uh, there's no claim to representativeness here, uh, or indeed universality. Um, so uh, I, my, my, my gloss is concessions, caveats, cautions. Um, so uh, I just want to show you this evidence to, to, to take a first cut at thinking about the dynamics of prices and their determinants. I'm going to emphasize today uh, the prices of books relative to uh, wages that workers earned. Um, and that's for illustration only. I have a, a lot of much more detailed work about incomes and price levels across different cities. Uh, the uh, challenge here is that evidence on incomes and the level of consumer prices in different cities is highly fragmentary. There are lots of uh, debating points at every step along the way. Um, so I'm going to use this as a heuristic, and that's the first step. Uh, like, so you should understand that this is not a, some sort of hard claim about this being the one way to think about book prices. Um, and we'll inquire into the incomes of other consumers as we go. Okay, so this is a picture. Um, so these are our four sources. The bulk of the evidence that I'll talk about is the uh, purchases by Cologne. So there's a couple thousand uh, purchases here. You can't quite see it because the, the, um, the markers are stacked up in such close proximity. Um, so we see uh, books falling from uh, prices where you know, they cost almost uh, a year's worth of labor. So this is 250 days worth of labor to something small over time. Okay. 
but you know, this scale on some level compresses uh, a lot of the most interesting action. And I, I don't know what your thinking is when you look at this, but a suggestion is that you actually can't really unpack most of the variation out here. Uh, it's, it's clustered close to something small, but it's hard to really understand uh, the action in this sort of picture. So I'm going to show you a series of pictures uh, as we go along. Okay, so the first question that one might have, or a question one might have, is uh, how do uh, workers' wages work? What do they serve as an index for thinking about uh, the accessibility of books? Like, surely this is the wrong benchmark, right? Uh, uh, an unskilled worker is not the representative purchaser uh, of uh, a quarto in the 1530s. Um, and that, that's fine. Um, so this is a strategic simplification that hopefully buys us some clarity. Uh, but you could easily think about looking at the incomes of different types uh, of economic actors, whether they're skilled workers, whether they're you know, civil servants of some sort who are earning maybe five times as much as an unskilled worker in Florence in the 1450s, whether they're senior professors of rhetoric. So you know, when, even when you look at the, the pay scale of university professors historically, there's, there's substantial variation. So, so this is a very well uh, uh, compensated professor of rhetoric. Okay? So uh, like Judy Butler was a professor of rhetoric at UC Berkeley for a while, and she was well, uh, well, well compensated. Uh, but this sort of uh, wage premium is quite high. Um, so the question of, of what is your benchmark is potentially uh, one that we can't answer definitively, but you can start to think about magnitudes by thinking about skilled wages, 50% more than <coughs> skilled wages, uh, a civil servant, maybe five times as much as an unskilled worker. A senior university professor, approximately 20 times as uh, much as an unskilled wage. What I'm going to show you are prices benchmarked to this unskilled wage. So if it costs a worker less half a day to get uh, a publication, it's going to cost the senior university professor much, much less, right? Half a day divided by 20 is approximately. So, Problem one, what's the right benchmark? Problem two, you know, what actually drives the variation in prices? Uh, we see prices evolving over time. How much is that because the books that, and pamphlets that we observe are changing over time? So there's some selection into what we see in markets, and indeed there's you know, change in what's produced. Uh, how, how much of that change in the nature of what's observed in markets is driving price declines of the sort that we just saw in that picture. Um, is it really a story of markets, uh, or is it somehow a story of changes in technology, in labor uh, processes, you know, what's going on behind the price declines that we're going to talk about? So this is. Uh, the evidence that I wish to show you in a highly summary form. So I'm going to talk to you about 1,400 books and 1,000 odd pamphlets. Uh, so the representative book average costs seven plus days of work, about one day median. The average pamphlet on average is less than a day's worth of work. Uh, the median value is about 0.2. So, I mean, means and medians, uh, 
So the median is the, the, the value directly in the middle of the distribution. So it's the 50th percentile. So if Rupert Murdoch walked into the room, the mean value of our wealth would presumably rise dramatically, but the median value wouldn't, right? The median would not be changed by this one weird outlier. Um, never mind politics, right? So uh, the question of what is the, the, the metric you wish to, to think about, um, this starts to highlight it. So our definition here is that pamphlets are 32 pages or less. That's just a simplification. So the representative pamphlet we have here is an eight-pager. Uh, the representative book is 142 pages. Okay. So the first thing I want to ask you to do is consider the prices of books on just a different scale axis. So the axis that I want you to think about is what we call ratio scale. Those of you who ever studied logarithms, this is with a logarithmic scale. Um, so Instead of going up one, two, three, we're going up in multiples of four. So we're not going one, two, three, we're going one, four, 16, 64, etc. On a ratio scale, a straight line slope implies a constant rate of change. When you look at the 2000 so book book prices that we have here, you see a very steady decline at, I mean, I would advertise to you something that suggests a constant slope across the 1500s. Okay. So arguably this is a sort of new fact, that books are steadily declining in price down to being uh, approximately one day's worth of work by the latter 1500s, early 1600s. Um, so these books, of course, have many features. So presumably your questions are, you know, is this all because we're moving to away from a world of folios to quartos? Um, are the subjects of these books changing and so on? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm going to sort of share with you some of these questions. So markets are certainly uh, characterized by diverse books diverse consumers in many cases, uh, diverse sellers. Um, and economics offers a set of methods for thinking about how we understand the prices of goods or services that have many features, that are not just sort of homogeneous goods, that have multiple dimensions along which value operates. So this is a classic for an economist. She immediately thinks, okay, how do you price a car? How do you price a house? And indeed, how do you price a human in a labor market? Right? These people, these cars, these homes are priced according to their features. Right? Are you living in zone two, zone three? How far are you from the tube? Uh, are you an Oxford graduate? How many years of experience do you have? What is your gender? All these things we observe having systematic correlations, relationships with prices. Okay? So we can think about how a good like a book has a price that reflects its format, its size, where it's sold, when it's sold, its illustrations, and so on, and start to think about which features drive variation in prices. Does this make sense? Yeah. 
So you might wish to ask, how does price vary with the book format? What is the premium for buying a full leaf? How do prices decay with book each, if they do? Are books like fine wine, or do they effectively depreciate? So in the data, they depreciate. And we might want to actually pin down how much do books prices decline every year since publication. Um, which literatures or authors, indeed, command high prices even controlling for the physical attributes of the book. So you start to think about thought experiments where you are comparing books that are, in terms of their physical attributes, arguably similar, but maybe their content is different on some dimensions. And fundamentally, are the long-run price declines driven by the changing mix of books or by some other aspects uh, of the, the book markets and book industry? So, uh, I'm going to show you a few exercises that effectively think about individual components determining book prices. So uh, I don't know whether, they, they, I never know when I speak, this is, sort of, is there science friction or, or do we embrace uh, talking across boundaries? Um, so I'm going to think about how prices vary with features of books. And we can talk about it, you can ask questions, we can talk about it at the end. Um, the, the key questions that come to my mind is, you know, are books really commensurable? What are the limits of an exercise comparing different books? Can we think about genuinely how prices vary with length, yes or no? How do we formalize this? And, and fundamentally, what's omitted? What is hard to observe? Does that provide grounds for more than just cautious resistance, like fundamental uh, rejection of the exercise. Um, so I'm going to suggest to you that there are reasons to embrace uh, strategic simplification. So whether or not your strategic simplification is quantitative, you know, we organize our disciplines around conceptual frames. Very rarely do those conceptual frames uh, delimit every nuance in some particular empirical setting. Uh, and at a high level, I guess my argument to you would be that sort of models and simplifications are, are virtually inescapable, uh, and that our, our, our argument probably should be about where they are uh, misleading. Uh, I don't know if there are readers of Borges' lovely story uh, the, about the rigor of the sciences. So he tells a parable about a kingdom where they uh, prized the art of map making. And so they made a map of the kingdom the size of a province. And they were not satisfied with its fidelity. So they made a map of the kingdom that was coterminous with the kingdom. Right? And so and then the, 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 the parable ends with now, now today there are like shreds of this map in the desert, sort of unused and forgotten. So the question is like what constitutes scientific rigor? Uh, you know, I'm coming to you from a discipline where we tend to privilege simplifications, which we think are strategic and have payoffs, right? You, you, of course, can reject the spirit of the exercise to think it does too much violence uh, to the, 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 the data or the evidence, uh, but, but walk with me a little bit. Um, you know, people are arguably also really uh, unique. <laughs> we, we tend to be willing to admit that there are uh, systematic relationships between uh, types of people and their labor market outcomes, even though we are all unique uh, snowflakes. Right? We're, we're suggesting something similar as economists, just taking this to 
the, the print world of the, the 1500s. Okay, so what I'm going to do is talk about how we can observe the impact of changing a particular feature of a book on book prices, controlling for, conditioning on those other attributes a book may have. That I think is in potentially interesting. So we're going to be able to think about, okay, conditional on the content. So within books of poetry, within philology, within uh, emblem books, how does price evolve over time? Okay. So the, this approach rests on a categorization of features. Um, and so a lot of, I think, the, the intellectual debate has to be about how would you categorize the physical and content characteristics of books. Um, so this is one, one book for which we have a price. Um, you know, we, have, we know something about its format. Uh, we know whether, in some cases, we know whether it was uh, sold bound or unbound, or whether the illustrations and the rubrication uh, were already in the copy when it was produced or not. Uh, there are sometimes uh, settings in which that's ambiguous. Uh, and like our methodology for dealing with that typically is to, to flag ambiguous as a feature. Like that actually is something that we can account for, that it is indeed ambiguous. Okay. So uh, I showed you this before um, on the left. So this is between the late 1400s and essentially the 30 years war. Um, this is the price of books and daily wages. And this is just plotting raw purchase prices of books. Okay, so we just see them steeply declining from costing 60 to 200 days of work to costing around one day of work. So the obvious thing to do, or a thing to do, is to, to consider what is the leftover price after you control for, account for changes in length, changes in topics, changes in illumination, whether it's printed in red and black or just black and so on. So I, what I'm showing you here is the time path of these same prices when we consider that which is left over and not directly accounted for by what topic class they're in, and I'm, I'm considering 37 different types of content, and these physical features, including also you know, how old the book is when it's, when it's purchased. So the thought experiment here is, imagine that you consider two octavos classified as the same, and then we can debate whether we think that these class 37 classifications, this is extremely rough, right? It, it is at, at once ambitious and potentially wanton. Um, so when we compare two such octavos on the, uh, on the same type of subject, that have the same length, that are both illustrated, that are both sold two years after they were first published, that neither contain red ink, but one is sold in 1510 and one is sold a decade or two decades later, what is the price difference? And that's what this is essentially going to be tracing out. So this is the leftover price difference as it evolves over time. 
So there's clearly still lots of variation. And so we see in many settings, including uh, Christina's work, you know, people, the same book is bought by two different purchasers within a matter of days at extremely different prices. There's some, some, some books in that, in that evidence where the price gap is extremely large as a percentage of, of the, the cheaper book, the, the, the premium price that someone was willing to pay is much higher. So, so and uh, several of those uh, 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 prices are here. Um, so, so there's lots of remaining dispersion in the data, but I'm just calling your attention to the fact that this is still really trending down after we, we take some first steps at trying to make comparisons between otherwise similar books and, and past books. Okay. So this is a summary of what that picture says in numbers. So you, you may or may not like um, quantification as a way to summarize a research. I, I work in a world of storytelling where everyone likes stories with numbers. That is sort of our privileged mode of conveying information. Uh, we don't think that we somehow have the only way to tell uh, stories about the past, but this provides one way to, to, to sort of tell these stories in a very compressed way. So we see prices falling by about 2.5% a year. That is before we start this exercise of trying to uh, establish comparisons between similar books. Uh, when we uh, control for or account for the evolution of formats, illustrations, the color of ink, and so on, we get a decline of about 1.8%. So I don't know what your prior is. Going into this project, I assumed that this would be much smaller, that most of the price decline would be about the rise of popular print and new types of books. Like I thought, okay, these surely are cheaper because they're no longer these fancy folios. But this is within folios, within a given format, within a given topic, we're seeing these price declines at rates which are relatively fast. So arguably, I mean, we, 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 I think, can only take this as a provisional finding, but arguably this is a very rapid decline in the price of a commodity in early modern Europe. So this, this is how it would be intelligible to my, my fellows in economics. Like, there, there is one received narrative that we have, which is like this sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of like a schoolboy's fable of like the Malthusian world where nothing is changing in world economic history until this heroic moment when England has its industrial revolution. And, and, and many senior people essentially subscribe to this. So th this final column is telling us that books are falling 1.7% a year within books of the same content when we're controlling for, for their format, their illustration, their ink features. So my friends in economics would, would perk their ears and think, this is suggestive of something like modern productivity growth before the, before the Industrial Revolution. So um, they would then, they would by now have interrupted me many times to tell me what is wrong with my exercise. And, and they, would have, they would have asserted that I have omitted factors that must fundamentally be driving this. Right? So they would say, surely, 
it's because they are cramming more letters onto a page, right? They would say uh, they are economizing on paper by shrinking margins, by changing formats, and other things that what you have thus far uh, accounted for does not yet capture. That, that would be, I think, the first line of attack. Um, so we're, we're doing work on that, but in fundamentally, like, I invite you to, to, to either now or later uh, propose to me what are all the features that you think you would, you would like uh, to draw into this exercise, um, fonts, uh, indexes, page numbering, uh, other title page uh, uh, dimensions that maybe I'm not capturing as well as I ought. Um, and then we can think about how, how we might want to take this the, the next step. So the, the first question is, you know, essentially, is this credible? Uh, the second question, which is not wholly the same, but it's related, is, you know, okay, what drives these price declines? So far, this is just an accounting exercise where I'm, I'm suggesting to you that prices are falling rapidly. Um, but what, what causes this? So I'm going to talk a little bit uh, to get at this at, about the, the evidence from the Cologne uh, purchases. Um, so uh, is, his, is his family history familiar to most or all? So that he's Christopher Columbus's son. Uh, he goes to the Americas twice, uh, the second time in 1508-09, and comes back and immediately embarks on his book buying adventures. Uh, his family uh, sets up uh, extractive slavery. Uh, they are involved in ethnic cleansing. Uh, they uh, do horrible crimes against humanity. One of the first slave rebellions in the Americas is on Hispaniola, on the estate of his brother. And the money that this adventure is generating is in a sort of interesting species of transubstantiation uh, funneled into high culture and the world of the early modern book trade, right? So this adventure is what essentially funds his library. So first, it's revenue from uh, the, the, the West Indies directly, and then eventually he has this annuity uh, from the Spanish crown. Um, so uh, his objective, very interesting, is, this, is to have this universal library um, you know, where he aims to, to collect all the books in Christendom and even beyond. Uh, you know, he writes this uh, delightfully uh, supplicant uh, note begging for money from the king, saying, you know, it's for you to walk with arms and, and letters. Um, so, so uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. So, so how representative are his purchases? I don't know how we could, we could definitively uh, rule on this, but what I will show you is just a quick picture which shows you know, the, the types of things, subjects he bought, the proportion of books he bought in philology, and how it compares to one measure of what is produced in Europe. Uh, that measure is the classification of books that the group up at, the, at St. Andrews in the USTC has produced. So it's certainly not definitive, and there's a question of how we would weight different uh, publications by the number of copies produced in a print run, but it gives you some sense of uh, what he was doing. I don't know if you can see it, it's too washed out. Um, but uh, this is the share of books on different topics in European output, and this is the share that uh, Christopher Columbus's son is buying. To the extent that he, he would map directly onto the European output, 
his purchases would fall on this line, right? They would, they would match this perfectly. So he buys more philology than we observe produced. He buys fewer political tracts and fewer education. He's, he's not as moved by questions concerning uh, women in marriage, right? He, he is more excited by poetry. <laughs> So he buys these books in many different towns. Um, so he buys some in Rome that are produced in these other cities. Uh, he buys books in Nuremberg that are produced in a range of cities. Uh, and so all told, he makes uh, purchases in a large number of European cities, sourcing books from many other European cities. And this provides a number of interesting things for us to think about, including how the prices change the farther books are transported. So we can now estimate some sort of measure of the increase in price associated with distance. It's, it's like we can get into the, the nuances of what that actually reveals. Are especially valuable books more likely to be transported over distance? Perhaps. Uh, but we, we now have a, a sort of interesting set of data from a large number of locations um, where we can also think about industrial organization at the local level. Okay, so what are his purchases uh, all told? So uh, his, his purchases are really interesting. So uh, Klaus Wagner and others have, have observed uh, that he bought books across uh, sort of political and religious uh, uh, divides. You know, he, there are Lutheran books that he's buying in German cities in the 1520s. There are also Catholic uh, uh, controversialist literature that he's buying at the same time. And there are many pamphlets. So, so this is the distribution of book prices. And the fact that we see these two spikes of very cheap books, so these are books that cost less than 1 16th of a day's worth of work, these are the pamphlets in his purchasing uh, uh, behavior. So he's, he's like potentially a tremendously interesting consumer for us. Now, he's an unusual one. He's one very odd-driven consumer, but he is buying cheap, popular stuff as well as the more expensive upper end of the market. Okay. So when we look at the prices uh, that we observe in his data, uh, I'm not sure, so I, I'm feeling self-conscious. I'm not sure if you can see, see this as well as I would like. But the first step here is to think about what is the price decline in his books. And we see that it's about 1% a year. Then we consider the price decline in all his purchases, books and pamphlets, and the price decline is closer to 4%. So this is immediately telling us that the pamphlets are decreasing in prices much more rapidly. So even over the period 1509 to the late 1530s when he's purchasing, pamphlets that he's purchasing are falling in price very rapidly. So we can think about breaking this out and saying, what is the price decline that is shared for all books? And what is the price decline, additional incremental price decline, specifically for pamphlets? So that this exercise tells us that essentially, Pamphlets are declining at over 4% a year in their prices. 
as I, to me anyways, especially given the richness of his religious purchasing, I was especially interested to know, like, is religious media that he's buying also trending down? And indeed, in particular, is it religious pamphlets that are, that are becoming cheaper and ever more affordable? And that, that's sort of what this exercise tries to walk us through. It tries to think about how the, the, the declines in the prices of books may be specific to different types of books. You could think of them as segments of the market or types of content. Uh, I think that like we think today the book industry or media markets are segmented. Uh, and what, what are the prices and conditions of access uh, to different segments uh, of the media market? So the big takeaway here is that we see differentially larger price declines in pamphlets, in religion, and all the more in religious pamphlets over this period of religious controversy when he's making many of his purchases. Do we want to talk as we go? Yeah. Um, okay. So where do price declines come from? Um, I sort of propose three three things to consider. Um, so the first would be technological progress, and this is often the preferred frame for an economist. Uh, we see technological progress that lowers the co cost of goods and services. So one claim about early modern printing is that the printing press apparatus didn't undergo dramatic changes over the 1500s. This evidence could lead you to question whether incremental and perhaps understudied or not discussed in, in, in connection with prices, dimensions of technological change could have really mattered. So if you were to talk to a, a historian of science like Joel Mokir, an economic historian of science, he, he often distinguishes between macro inventions and micro inventions. And his argument would be that the, the sort of chain of micro inventions that follow big breakthroughs often fundamentally transform the social world by changing the conditions of access, supply, and prices. So obviously, there's a rupture associated with the printing press. But are there other aspects of the evolution of this technology that gradually diffuse that could lead prices to decline over time? So you know, just to pick one example, you know, if, you, if you produce type that have some sort of uh, sort of tactile marker so that a typesetter can identify the orientation of the letters without having to pause and examine them at length, that would potentially speed up the typesetting process. And an economist would recognize that as a technological advance, potentially a very important one. Uh, it could also be you know, the, the sort of the, the seating or standing arrangement of a typesetter. Uh, as a quasi-technological or work organization innovation. Um, so if you can typeset by feel without looking, um, you know, potentially that's the sort of thing that we should inquire about. Or are there other small modifications in printing presses that are associated with these declines in prices? Another question is whether work and the compensation of workers change over this time. So, 
what do we know about how productive a worker was uh, per day, per hour? What was the work regime? So how many press pulls did a worker uh, 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 do? How many, how many sheets uh, are formed, are, are produced in the course of a work day? Seems salient. We would imagine that, that if output is going up over time, potentially prices are going down. Um, and then competition. So this is my gloss. I'm not sure what your prior is about the world. I don't know whether you want to call these guys capitalists or not. But my question is, like, why would a capitalist ever willingly lower prices? Why would they ever willingly pass along technological uh, progress to you, the consumer? I mean, what? Like, no capitalist wants to lower their price. Uh, no capitalist wants to pay the worker a higher wage. Like, how is it that technological progress is transmitted to lower prices that we pay as consumers? So presumably, the nature of competition shapes the prices that are set in markets. So what is the industrial organization amongst printers, booksellers? Uh, how does that shape how any of these things are, in fact, taken up? Like the, the, you know, the adoption of technology also presumably reflects uh, competitive uh, dynamics. So in some separate work, I'm looking at the adoption of different type. So you know, we can see from the Infinabulate era, you know, as printers uh, acquire different sets of type, like these are these are fixed investments that are also competitive strategies. Uh, firms adopt new uh, uh, capital to differentiate their product and also to strategically signal to competitors uh, something about their commitment to fight on price and quantity dimensions. So thinking about printing as um, an early capitalist labor process. So Ferre and Martin say uh, workers are like quasi-automatons, um, like modern typists at a keyboard. Um, so when I, when I graduated from my first degree, I, I tried to get a job in the temp. Uh, that's what we called them in the States. Like, you know, and they, they would take you and put you in a room and test how many words a minute you could do. Right? And then depending on how fast you were, you might get a gig or you might not. So they're sort of imagining these workers, like these automatons, like, uh, pulling the press and so on. So we, I don't know what what our consensus in this room is. You know, is this historical poetic license? Uh, are they really like modern typists or not? Um, there certainly seem like there's some suggestion that these uh, workers are working quite hard. Um, and like, if we go back to literature, like Dumont's uh, article uh, on printer or printing by the rules, where there's discussion of uh, labor uh, strikes and uh, petitions both from printers and sometimes uh, from employers, we have some evidence that the number of impressions expected per day were extremely high, and that the work days were extremely long, uh, and that there were penalties on uh, failing to finish quotas and on absences that were quite severe. Um, so to the extent that all of this somehow is part of how these books that Hernando Colon is purchasing, um, we, we may think that this really matters. Whether and how we, you know, someone like myself can quantify this is open to question. Uh, but it certainly seems like, uh, to me, a very interesting, important part 
uh, of the puzzle. So even if workers are being driven hard, uh, we tend to think that prices reflect uh, the way in which product markets actually operate. So uh, including market power. So our, our idea of market power is how far you are from an economist's fantasy of a world in which there's like infinitely many competitors selling incredibly exchangeable products. So it's very hard for me to raise my price because you can essentially produce the same thing and supply it at will. Now, that does not seem like it characterizes early modern printing, that high, high level of competition, because the products are very differentiated. There are a small number of competitors in a city, and there are costs to trade across cities. So there's all sorts of aspects of monopolistic power in these markets. So a few examples that start to speak to that. So I'm going to just suggest um, a quick glance at market structure by one metric across cities where Hernando Colon is arriving as a creature of the Spanish crown with a very big purse ready to make lots of book purchases. So he goes to Mainz in the 1520s twice. He buys a mere 13 publications. Some he buys in a year when there are five firms, and some he buys in a year when there are six firms. So across the years when he has visited Mainz, something has changed about industrial organization in Mainz. There's another firm. So we see something similar on his trips to Nuremberg, Rome, Venice, and so on. So this is a measure of firms which we can debate. It's a proxy. The question of how you define a firm that are talking about this over lunch is extremely fraught. What I'm showing you here is the number of independent printers that we are observing with their names on the book. So there's, there's all sorts of reasons why this is not to our entire satisfaction as a measure of industrial organization. Okay, so I'm on, I hope to signal to you, like, I'm on your side some level. Okay? Um, what I want to suggest to you is that this is a noisy measure. It is not a one-to-one -one transparent measure of what you truly wish to study. The question of how you would truly study some imaginary final measure of competition is, is complicated. What I want to show you or tell you is that even this dirty, inadequate measure strongly predicts behavior by printers. And it strongly predicts the prices that this man paid when he showed up in these markets. So, you know, within our world of like, the, in the, I'm sort of simplifying this, like my colleagues would be demanding all sorts of discussion of the, the precise nature of measurement error and statistical showings about how precise we are in our confidence around the conclusions throughout this talk. But what I want to signal to you is that we're not totally, totally Philistines when we, when we, when we, we, we we deal with this data. We understand that it's imperfect and noisy. And the showing is that even 
as imperfect and noisy data, which in many ways is liable to bias your conclusions down. You're liable to find nothing the more noisy it is. We find that the prices that he pays are sharply lower in more competitive moments. Why do we want to make comparisons within, say, a city decade? Well, the, the sort of simplest gloss that I have in mind is you, know, you think that cities have different cultures. They have different uh, like print media markets. There are different desires in these cities. At least in a city within some short window of time, within three years, five years, many of those features you might, although not necessarily, might be able to conceive might be sort of fixed. And so we're, we're interested in thinking about how the prices in media markets change in a narrow window when a new competitor shows up. It, it could not, in other work I have, like you could also study content. So in the, in the context of the Protestant Reformation, when you have a new competitor enter the market, does ideology in the media change? Right? You could think about this today in media markets, you know, when, when cities or media markets are served by new competitors, do prices and does content change? So what we find in this setting is that when there are new entrants, prices are about 25% lower in the years when there's another firm. So we can, I guess, talk about the details of that. This big effect tends to attenuate over time. So what we see are essentially entrants triggering price wars, which drive prices down sharply at first, and then there's some recovery. So that they, they manage to sort of reconsolidate a, a dispensation with higher prices, but that we see in, in more competitive markets, prices permanently being a little bit lower. So this is one sort of one place that an economist, anyways, would push on this evidence. Uh, I'm not sure what you would think, but like on some level, this sort of research takes seriously the idea that this is really a market with competition that at least some tools of economics can apply to. So I, I don't know, you know, there's this sort of quick saying that you know the past is another country. So on some level. Much of this is sort of claiming no. There are some dimensions in which yes, uh, you know, we, we look at the 1500s across an incredible uh, sort of gulf and separation. But there are some ways in which some of the, the behaviors that we observe people in the printing trades uh, uh, sort of you know, acting out seem like the sorts of things that my colleagues in economics would find ent entirely intelligible. Okay. So um, the big picture um, is that we see these declines in prices of about 1% to 2% per year, and that this adds up dramatically over 100 years. Uh, so you know, at a high level, there's this long decline in prices, and that, that, that fundamentally leaves a, a European consumer, a European producer, in the late 1500s in a very different place than the European producer in the early 1500s. These declines seem like they're larger and more pronounced in the segments of markets that are uh, more competitive, um, times where markets are more competitive, like including the, the Reformation, the controversial literature of the Reformation. Uh, and in short run terms, there are very sharp declines in prices uh, that are, are very clear responses to changes in industrial organization. 
Um, so we, maybe this is, this is sort of uh, the world of economists. There, we privilege cause and effect narratives. Um, and uh, my colleagues would find the evidence on the short run declines when a new firm enters, especially compelling evidence that changes in industrial organization actually quote unquote cause the changes in price behavior. And I think more largely, uh, you know, for me it's, it was nice over lunch to, to talk to people, but the hope is to sort of open some uh, space to talk uh, a bit more between book history and social history and economics about some of these questions. So, you know, uh, I don't know, we see what your takeaway is, but, you know, we have ideas and tools that arguably uh, can provide interesting fodder for you. And uh, you obviously have expertise and knowledge that is extremely valuable for us. Uh, and, and bridging this is potentially uh, really valuable. So that's what I have. And I also invite um, those of you who don't say something to email me with your criticisms and suggestions. Thank you very much. Thank you.